0: Coming up is part one of the project that commemorates the fallen glaciers of Olympic National Park. This project is called Terminus. To find out more information about Terminus, go to nps.gov olym that's O-L-Y-M slash Terminus, that's T-E-R-M-I-N-U-S. And as a reminder, any artist can apply to commemorate these glaciers uh, by filling out an application, and you have to do this before March 31st, 2022. That's the deadline. So enjoy the interview. This first part is a little bit of background about the park itself and the glaciers of Olympic National Park. day from Saipan, you are tuned into another episode of Colony Collapse. This is a Colony Collapse, Conversation. Um, these conversations showcase artists and scientists alike in an effort to gain new perspectives on our empirical world. Today, we're going to be talking to the designers and contributors of the Terminus Project. Gotcha. Terminus Project is an innovative way of utilizing art, science, community and technology to spread awareness of climate change's impact on the glaciers of the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. Uh, I'm joined by Sophie Wilhoyt, Eliza Good and Bill Bacchus and if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves, Eliza
1: Hi, thank you so much for having us, JD Um, I'm a visual information specialist, which is kind of a government catch-all title, and in my case, it means that I do some filmmaking and some photography and some social media management, and sometimes really exciting projects like this that are not exactly any of those things, but connected to all
2: of them.
0: I am Bill Baucus.
2: Uh, Yeah, hi, I'm Bill, and uh, I am the uh, physical scientist here at Olympic National Park, and I work uh, for the North Coast and Cascades Network, which includes all of the parks uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, working on the long-term monitoring program. Uh, we also call it the Park Vital Science program, which is really looking at different ecosystem components and um, and measuring how how they're kind of doing in the long term. And so uh, yeah, that's what I'm uh, that's what I do here. a lucky guy. Yeah.
0: So, Sophie, tell us about yourself.
3: I'm Sophie, and um, I've been working for the network, North Coast Cascades Network, since 2014 as invasive plant management uh, crew, crew lead and data manager. And currently going to school, getting my master's in GIS, which is geographic information science, because I just want to make maps. That's my dream.
0: All right, you all. Thanks so much for taking the time to join the show. It means a lot to me. It's good to see uh, some familiar faces again. Um, So I guess for those that are listening, I guess we can go over a little bit about Olympic National Park itself, because there's going to be a bunch of listeners that are listening in Utah, um, some in Saipan, Northern Mariana Islands, and who knows, all over the world, potentially. Tell, uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about the park itself?
1: All right, well, I I would say in my humble opinion and due respect to Utah and Saipan, that Olympic National Park is probably the most beautiful place on planet Earth. It's absolutely spectacular and it's an incredibly diverse uh, national park. It has you know rainforests and ocean beaches And we have these beautiful mountains uh, crowned in glaciers. We have more glaciers in Olympic National Park than Glacier National Park, actually.
0: Plot twist. (laughs) (laughs) Not that it's a
1: competition.
2: (laughs) And as we'll talk about it, we probably don't want to brag about the number of glaciers we have since they're disappearing. (laughs) (laughs) As we'll uh, discuss later.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's... um, you know, it's something that, like, it's a very unique thing about the park, right? Like, that there are so many glaciers there in the lower 48. Maybe, like, what brought the park about? Like, Because the park parks are brought about for protecting some sort of resource, right? I think there's, like, can you all, like, talk about some of the things that you, that you know the park is known for? In my, I, I feel like it's not known for the glaciers. It's known for other things. What are some of those other things that it's known for?
2: Well, the park was originally established, you know, for conservation of these, um, these Roosevelt elk herds. Um, Mm -hmm. and also I think the other, the other thing that was, was on the agenda at that time was really conserving these just vast stands of old growth forest, you know, and, and even in, the you know, this is. It was established in 1938. And by that time, you know, we were already seeing like the elk herds devastated. We were seeing, you know, huge swaths of forest being cut. And so, you know, I think those were really the two pieces of just kind of preserving these like large, um, pretty amazing, pla- you know, this large and pretty amazing place. So, so, so that's kind of the, the, the original purpose.
1: There's also almost a million acres of designated wilderness within Olympics boundaries, uh, including some coastal wilderness, but a lot of uh, the interior of the park
3: as well.
2: Yeah. Oh. How
3: many miles of coastal wilderness
2: are there? I know it's over 50 miles. I think it's between, yeah, it's at least over 50 miles.
0: Yeah, see, that's the, those are the things that like, like I have a friend that's uh, going to be visiting up there like I was talking to him, I was like, Yeah, I'm gonna be interviewing these people about, you know, commemorating these glaciers, you know. And they're like, There's glaciers in Olympic? What? Mm-hmm. I was like, Yeah, oh yeah, lots of glaciers. Roughly how many glaciers, like, let's 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 get the numbers. Okay. How many okay. glaciers are there in the Olympic or how many were there and are, are still there today? Stuff like that.
2: Well, I guess that's my department, and I, I I can touch on that. But can we reverse back to that original question just quickly, JD? Because yes, I always sir. like to kind of sum it up, you know. And I and I think we yeah. did in our discussions. But I just want to sum yeah. up two super cool things about Olympic, you know.
0: Do it, um, yeah. Give it its justice.
2: Yeah, there you go. Right? Okay. And, and <laughs> Eliza Eliza kind of touched on it. Right. The park encompasses nearly a million acres of wilderness, you know. Mm-hmm. And traveling top to bottom. You know, you have, you know, razor, razor razor-like ridges. You've got glaciers. You've got mountain lake basins galore. You've got old growth forest. You've got miles of free-running rivers, none of them dammed. Um, We've got a rugged coastline. We've got tide pools, which are a biodiversity hotspot, the highest biodiversity on the West Coast. And we've got sandy beaches. So, what's not to like is how I like to think of it. And I'm a climate guy and a weather guy. And one of the coolest things about this park, too, I always thought it should be called like hydrology national park because (laughs) the Olympic Mountains, you know, they're in this unique location where in a couple miles, you travel from sea level to, you know, nearly 8,000 feet. And these Pacific, these constant Pacific storms come, you know, slamming in almost from where you are, JD, right now, Um, you know, straight into the mountains, uh, warm and wet and dropping significant amounts of rain, you know, which is forming our rainforest, is filling these massive rivers um, as it rises, you know, and it's also kind of dropping these prolific amounts of snow, which is why Olympic has, glaciers at some of the lowest elevations um, that you'll find outside of alaska um you know and then as you travel the leeward side of the mountains to our, our northeast side we've got oak savannas and cactus so it's a really diverse place it's really cool just from an ecological standpoint so just wanted to throw that in there um, and and so let's go into the glaciers I. Um, I've been I've been uh, studying uh, glaciers here at the National Park um, since we, we started our first study in 2009. But I'm going to reverse back a little bit. The first inventory of glaciers was in 1982. It was a master's thesis by a guy named Rich Spicer. We were able to take that data using GIS and look at more recent data. and. Where we're at is, is we, have, we currently have 148 glaciers. That's down from uh, 266 in 1982. So we've lost 118 glaciers in that period, in about 35 years. So that's, that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of, of what we've lost. But I think the most compelling point of, of that story is, is not the number of um, small glaciers that have disappeared, but really the loss of glacial ice So as an example, most of our largest glaciers here in the park, they've decreased in volume by about 25% since the early 1990s. An example would be our largest glacier, which is the Blue Glacier, which is on the north side of Mount Olympus, uh, which is the tallest peak in um, the Olympic Mountains. Uh, But it's lost in its lower elevations, it's lost about 120 feet of ice thickness in the last 20 years and uh one more kind of little factoid i always like to throw out just i don't know reminding myself of kind of the urgency of this situation is that um in the span of time since i've been a scientist here at the park which is 35 years the total area of glacial ice um in the Olympic Mountains has decreased by 46%. So almost a 50% loss of surface area of ice since I started working here. And I'm an old guy, but not that old. All right, there yeah, you go. I mean, that's all the bad news on glaciers.
0: Yeah, that is that is a lot. I mean, that's you do see a lot of change over there for sure. I mean, it's the glaciers there are extremely susceptible to melting because there are so so low or so close like I guess they're close to the equator compared to other glaciers around the world.
2: Yeah our mountains are very, very low. Yeah. In elevation. And and relatively we have relatively warm winters. You know, we're we're really close to freezing level a lot of times.
0: Right. And so one of the things I was wondering about is like we hear we hear so much about, you know, the impact worldwide of glacial loss. I mean, it's not to, it's nothing to skip over, but um, I think one of the things that we don't understand or we don't hear a lot about are the localized effects of uh, glacier loss. So like, what are some of the changes that are occurring in the ecosystems on the Olympic Peninsula because of uh, glacier loss?
2: Well, I think, Uh, A first real key point to talk about with glaciers is that we have and and we touched on it, right? We have these glaciers because we get so much winter snow and traditionally Mm. the summers haven't been in certain areas. The summers just aren't long enough or warm enough to melt all that snow. So the glaciers form, but when we think of glaciers and kind of the localized impacts I think we really need to think of them as kind of an indicator of a larger picture, which is just the loss overall of our mountain snowpack. Our glaciers are getting smaller because our snowpack uh, is decreasing. You know, we're getting mm-hmm. more rain in the mountains and less snow in the mountains. So it's, it's like a, a bit of a canary in the coal mine of sorts. You know, it's, it's this indicator. We're seeing these things disappear and it's really telling us that we're, we have less snow stored in our mountains. And so here in the Pacific Northwest, sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but we really have like a profoundly dry summer seasons. A lot of times we'll have July and August where you know it, we barely get any rain, and so our downstream ecosystems, you know, our cities, our farms, we're relying on that snowpack and those glaciers to melt during warm summer months and provide a source of water downstream, and. Um, the glaciers and that mountain snowpack, they're regulating the amount, you know, as it, as it stops raining, they start melting. So it, you know, we get, this, we get this steady amount of water flowing through our streams and rivers, and that melting snow also cools the water. So it's regulating the, both the amount and the temperature of the water in our rivers and streams. And so, so really the disappearance of glaciers and having less snowpack in the mountains it's it's going to decrease the water in our rivers and it's going to increase temperature and that's going to affect it's going to affect a wide variety of aquatic species you know and probably the most obvious here is is anadromous fish like salmon you know which are important for local tribes they're important for as you know as an economic engine for you know our fisheries and, you know, they're they're also kind of kind of an iconic species for the Pacific Northwest or for the West Coast in general.
0: Um, yeah, they're definitely yeah. like a species that's a bridge. Like it's one of those things that is, you know, I, I was going back to what we we're talking about before. It makes the Olympic Peninsula so special is that not only do you have all these ecosystems, but you have them all you can see the interactions because they're all so close together. You can see how different ecosystems are actually intertwined, right? Right. Even like the, the fact that salmon will be impacted by glacial disappearance, basically, um, is just sort of, it just makes you wonder about what else will be impacted in the marine environment because that is so closely related with, you know, um, you know, glacial melt it is sending out nutrients, and that has a lot to do with like the productivity of the uh, marine ecosystem. So, yeah, it's it's you know they're very vital to
2: yeah other ecosystems. It's all tied, to, it's all tied together. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, JD, uh, an interesting you know just. In uh, 2015, we had this extremely, uh, a very, very low snowpack. So it was an opportunity for us to really understand how much the glaciers actually contribute to uh, stream flow. And we found that in that year, uh, the Ho River during the summer season from May to September, about 25% of the water flowing in the Ho River, which is one of our largest rivers on the peninsula, uh, that was coming directly off of Glaciers in the highest reaches of the park. Wow! And
1: Bill, I think you told me before that normally it would be about half that, but the glacier kind of was making up for what was missing and what would be normal snowfall.
2: That's exactly it. Yeah. And so it, it, uh, you know, but but it just really makes you understand how 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 important this is. Um,
3: Can I add um, one more cool thing? Um, Yes. Connect. So Olympic was home to two dams on the Elwa River. They were just removed in the last ten years, and the salmon are definitely coming back like a really good uh, return of them.
0: yeah, and that that was something I was thinking about too, is there's some you know very there's a lot of eyes on some of the conservation efforts like locally on the Olympic Peninsula, like the Elwa uh, dam removal, and how that's you know. Uh, The succession of that Um, and you know I think that that's one thing that gets overlooked is that you know glacier like if the glaciers that feed the Elwha now maybe you can talk more about this bill but I mean Elwha is glacial fed but it's also fed by snow melt too but um, I guess how much water or like how many glaciers feed the Elwha
2: Boy, I, I don't have that number off the top of yeah. my head, JD. But sorry, I, that's I, a
0: tough one to throw at no, you. No, <laughs> no, no,
2: no. That that that's okay. But I can tell you that I believe it's about eight percent of the summer water in the Elwha River uh, comes okay. from glaciers. And probably the most, the largest, the most obvious glacier uh, that feeds into the Elwha would be is is also one of the most seen glaciers in the park because it would be the Carey Glacier. Uh, which mm-hmm. is right across, you can see, you know, right across, if anyone looks at a photo of, uh, from the Hurricane Ridge Lodge, you're looking straight across at the Bailey Range and the Cary Glacier. Um, but, but I can't tell you how many you feed it, but, but it certainly is fed by glaciers.
0: Yeah, another thing that is, like, on the time I spent on the Olympic Peninsula, um, being an insect nerd, there's certain things you couldn't see in my home state in Kentucky... And one of those things was this whole order of insects that doesn't exist in the Eastern US. It only exists around like the ring of fire actually. And that's because they exist on permanent snow fields or glaciers. And they actually, I guess they are, um, they were found in places like Deer Park and they are suspected to be on some of the glaciers out there. Um, They're called ice crawlers. Have you all heard of these before?
2: I haven't unless, I, I mean, we have we have ice worms. Are they one and the same? It's an amylid?
0: It's not the same thing, but okay, um, no.
2: I'm
0: going to come back to the ice worm in a little bit. But the ice crawler um, is basically, it's an order of insects. They are so adapted to cold environments that if they... Like supposedly, if you hold them in your hand, you will kill them from heat exposure. They are very reliant on the permanent snow fields and the glaciers. They actually—you've um, probably seen this before, Bill, where you see like dead thing, like dead insects that drift up in the summertime or something on the glaciers. You know, there's like mm-hmm, dead things mm-hmm. just on the surface. Yep, that's where their food source is. Like the glacier is sort of like their spider web if you will you know so they go out and they crawl and they just eat whatever's you know blown up on the glaciers
2: nice. so, so they're kind of a little detritivore you know they're running around. yeah and, and, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. and so yeah i mean like they're very you know it's something that's overlooked all these little species that have actually adapted to living exclusively in ice or snow um and you mentioned something what do you do you know much about the ice worm I don't know a whole lot about it, actually, Bill.
2: Uh no, no, I, I, I really don't. But, um, but they, but what I do know is they're just, you know, they're they're such amazing. I've had experiences with ice worms, and and <laughs> I, I can tell you what, what they are. You know, they're they're in the same family. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, JD. But they're uh, they're in the same family as an earthworm, so they're like a segmented worm. And and you know they're another one of these kind of really cool what what do you call those extremophiles you know they live they live in these these very kind of intense environments and in this case you know they live in the matrix of of snow and ice in glaciers and um, you see them rarely but there's certain conditions like low light conditions towards evening and suddenly you will look around as you travel. And it just looks like a little piece of like thin um, lichen or something. And suddenly you'll realize that the glacier surface is just teeming with, you know, literally millions of these little tiny, maybe um, one to two centimeters long, these little tiny worms. And, and I think they're doing a similar thing. They're, they're out um, feeding on detritus in the, in the surface of the glacier. They're they're kind of incredible. There's been some studies of them. I know that there's distinct populations, you know, um, in certain mountain ranges, so they're not all the same species. Um, Mm -hmm. And and, um, the densities can be remarkable. For instance, uh, in North Cascades, and I saw this, uh, where we counted uh, 2,600 of these worms in a square meter. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so you calculate that out (laughs) to the surface of that glacier and the numbers were literally like, you know, in the billions. And so we just don't know much about them because they're incredibly ephemeral. But, you know, you got to think like if there's... Those have got to be filling some niche and also some piece of the food web if they're showing up in these incredibly remote places and they're at a density of, you know, 2,600 square meter. How could that not, you know, on a very small microcosm be an interesting piece of a of a small ecosystem, you know? And 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 yeah. you know, and and the, you know these little disparate populations that occur on you know certain glaciers and certain mountain ranges, you know, and they'll they'll be mm-hmm. blipping out with the with their you know with the glaciers, so.
0: They're cool. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They stay cool. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's like something for sure that is definitely that's like it's a it's a little micro island biogeography conservation issue. It's that you know you know on islands there's limited dispersal of uh, species and limited gene exchange. You know, so that is something that promotes evolution and i mean one of the reasons i heard about the ice crawler thing was um because you can suspect if there's a population on an isolated snowfield, it's probably an endemic species i think there was a group out there when i was out in olympic that was investigating the ice crawler like uh that was out there and trying to figure out if it was an endemic species or not i don't know what they found with that actually but um I mean I wouldn't be surprised if it was but also like the worm they're also like crepuscular they are nocturnal like you only see them they're really hard to spot so
2: they're in a hard place to get to as well so you know it takes a lot to study these
0: yeah, yeah. Well,
1: For the sure. way you told that the way you told that story reminds me just again why I'm so glad you're working on this project with us because like they are really hard places to get to and You know, there might be uh, uh, some other people in the world who could give us the facts and figures, but the fact that you have like these stories, these direct personal encounters with the glaciers is just like, it's so valuable and I really appreciate what you bring to it.
2: Well, thank you for saying that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you're great. I mean, you always have, you're a great storyteller, Bill.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Because
0: you have great stories, you have great lived experiences.
2: Yeah, I'm um, really fortunate to have that. <laughs> you're
3: the you're the brains and experience behind this project. Well,
0: I'll take
2: the I'll take the experience. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Bill, you're likely invaluable to this to this project. Let's Absolutely. talk a little bit about the project itself. Hey, hey, um, before
2: we dive into that, JD, I just yeah. want to say I I, I actually uh, Fradkin and I have to go give a talk on mountain lakes. Um, oh, nice! Well, we've got a we've got a big review coming up uh, at at noon, and so I'm gonna sign off if that's okay with you guys.
0: Yeah, I think Stay we're on. at a good point because yeah, we that was kind of the background stuff we were looking for, and you're the perfect person for it, Bill. And we should yeah. catch up some other time.
2: That would be great. And 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 before I check out, um, I I just want to say I'm so excited about this project and it was just a wonderful kind of brainchild of these guys and and you know you guys are about to talk about it so i won't say more than just i'm really excited to be working on this and i just love i i I wish i had some talent uh to contribute to to this terminus project because it's i'm just really excited it's going to be an amazing thing and i love this idea that that you you're talking about too jd of mixing the arts with with science it's fantastic so i'm just excited to see what we get and thank you um eliza and sophie for all the work on this you're
3: you're all over this project so don't
2: worry (laughs) Good, good, good. Well, I appreciate it. And great talking to you, JD. Uh, you know, I wish you were still here working for me.
0: Oh, man, I'd love to come back. <laughs>
2: come back. <laughs> it's, it's always <laughs> on
0: my mind. It's always yeah. like, I mean. Well, but, door's um,
2: always open, JD.
0: Bill, before you go, I wanted to say thank you so much for uh, joining and spending your time giving us your uh, lived experiences amongst the glaciers and all the scientific information. One thing before you go, but I always wanted to know about what inspired people to do what they're doing. But I also asked for a song request for the radio show too.
2: Yeah, you know, my inspiration I think was was my teachers. I had an amazing marine biology teacher in seventh grade. I had an amazing biology teacher in high school and the passion they had and the field trips, it just really, I think it just really excited me. and, and so it just always compelled me to study science. And, um, you know, and what brought me to the park service was just, uh, you know, a trip with some buddies my freshman year in college. And I came to Olympic National Park and drove 20 hours straight and stumbled down in, onto Shy Shy Beach. And, you know, there was kind of uh, no looking back after that. So, uh, you know, when I found out that people could work on science in national parks. I, uh, yeah, I just couldn't. Uh, yeah, I just. I, I feel like one of the most fortunate people in the world to, you know, have this as an opportunity. And I, you know, I always mention that when I give public talks or whatever, because I, I just have really been blessed with that that opportunity. And and you know, that people have given me that. So, so I'm very thankful for that. And I'm going to have to think on a song, JD. So I'm going to send that to you.
0: Okay, we'll get back to. I mean, I I might be able to think of some of the music that we used to listen to in the car. So maybe I'll just throw that in if you don't get back to me.
2: There you go. Does it have to be half a? It probably needs to have a uh, you know some form of theme that goes with our terminus project, though, doesn't it?
0: It can. I mean, I mean, that's. (laughs) I'd say for this project, since it is an art-oriented project, you can include just a request that that is relevant. Or just something that like, you know, I think that when you're doing data entry or something like that, it's like, you gotta have something that drives you, you know, and it can just be something like that. I kind of like to get in the head of scientists and, you know, people doing conservation as to what art is helping them get through the process, you know?
2: Yeah. All right, well, good. You can
0: get back to me. I I,
2: I think I have a song Although it, it really has no relevance to any of that, but I just think it's good for, you know, title, if nothing else. Okay, what is it? How, uh, how about Del McQuarrie, Cold Rain and Snow?
0: Yes. Okay, yeah. I've seen I've seen, uh, the, what is it, the McQuarrie, there's another McCoury, um yeah, they, The span. Band. Yeah. I've seen them a couple times. Yeah, they're times, great, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Uh, great. You could
2: do the sun's doing it or you could do the original or you could do the Grateful Dead doing it. any of the three. OK, I'm sure Adam would appreciate the Grateful Dead version. But
0: <laughs> All right. I'll, but, I'll, uh, yeah, I think I that's have,
2: a good theme for, you know, uh, because it's the cold rain and snow that keeps our glaciers alive.
0: That's right. That's great. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. I'll let you go.
2: All right. Take uh, care you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Bill. Take care,
0: Bill. Talk to you again okay. soon. Okay, we'll see you later. All right, bye. And that concludes part one of my interview with the contributors of the Terminus Project in Olympic National Park. This is a project that commemorates the uh, glaciers that are no longer there and the glaciers that are shrinking in the park on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. For more information about that, go to nps.gov slash that's O-L-Y-M slash terminus, that's spelled T-E-R-M-I-N-U-S. There you can find an application to get involved in commemorating these glaciers through uh, various media of art. Uh, the applications are being accepted through March 31st, 2022. Coming up near the end of Colony Collapse is the second part of this interview. Um, You can stay tuned to catch that, or I'm going to finally be offering these podcasts or these interviews uh, in a downloadable podcast form. Um, Go to the Facebook page, just look for Colony Collapse Disorder through Sound and Science on Facebook, and there will be more information on how to go about doing that. Um, I haven't decided if I'm going to go through SoundCloud or Bandcamp, so stay tuned for that. Um, but also the track that you're listening to right now, I've made specifically for these interviews and I want to get more involved personally with creating artwork for this radio show. So if you like this track, you can also download this track. Um, you can also just directly message me for any of these downloads. Um, if you know, Bandcamp or Soundcloud is too confusing (laughs) for some reason, um, I'd be happy to send that to you. So, um, yeah, stay tuned or look for the second part of this interview with the creators of Terminus. You also aren't going to want to go away because we have a killer selection of tunes curated by the ArcGIS specialist of Terminus, Sophie Wilhoit. Um, we curated this playlist together. And also, we're going to start off the set of music for the show with Bill Bacchus' request Del Macquarie, Rain and Snow. We'll play that after this track fades out. So don't go anywhere, keep it locked. You're listening to Colony Collapse Disorder through Sound and Science.
2: and snow that keeps our glaciers alive.